Good morning, peace be with you. Before we dive into this text on prayer, would you join me in praying? Father, as we come to you this morning, uh, we prepare to walk through your word. I pray, Lord, that you, you would stir in us an awareness that your spirit is actually present in our hearts and among us. I pray as we look at this prayer that's so familiar that we've heard hundreds and thousands of times throughout our lives. Lord, I pray that your spirit, he would enable us to hear these words anew. And that he would enable us to see not just the beauty of this prayer, but the life, the beauty of the life that this prayer leads us into. And Lord, it's always a challenge when we come to things that we're familiar with, that we think we know, and I pray that you would honor our request to give us fresh eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray, Lord, that we would walk out of here with something new or maybe a discovery, a rediscovery of something old so that we might more fully live into the life and the calling that you have for us. Lord, we put all of these things before you, knowing that you're eager to hear and you're eager to answer. And it's in the name of your Son, who taught us to pray, that we pray. Amen. Well, for the last, I've been really excited about preaching this text, because for the last few months, a lot of our leaders and pastors here in the church, we've been feeling this growing burden for prayer and for growing as growing in prayer as a people. And so we've been thinking about prayer, reading, talking a lot about prayer. We plan to actually spend, starting in the fall, we want to spend a year trying to grow as a church in prayer. And in all these conversations, one of the things that's stuck out and that we've recognized we have to address is what I call the paradox of prayer. And what I mean when I say the paradox of prayer, prayer is the easiest thing we do as Christians, and I would argue it's the hardest thing we do as Christians. It's easy because it's simply talking to God. That's not a difficult thing to do. But it's hard because it's talking to God, and that's a very difficult thing to do. And we live in a day and an age where we're all really busy, and our lives are filled with a ton of noise. And so slowing down to actually talk with God is it's very hard for us. And when we do manage to slow down, we often don't know exactly what to say or even how to pray. I've taken some unscientific polls with our staff and leaders and said, hey, what, what do you think is people's biggest challenge with prayer? And one of the things that comes up again and again is we don't know what to say. We don't really know how to pray. The second one is, and we're terrified to, to pray in front of other people. Like, we don't find a lot of joy in that. Most of us. Some of you do. Most of you don't. I'm guessing 9 out of 10 of you would not be happy if I pointed at you, gave you a microphone and said, would you pray for us all right now? It stirs anxiety in us. And really, that's what prayer does. Prayer can be a source of great anxiety and lead to a lot of insecurity for us. It, but when we contrast ourselves with Jesus, in Jesus we see something radically different. That prayer wasn't the source of an anxiety. It was the antidote to anxiety. It wasn't the cause of insecurity. It was where he went to find security. When we look at Jesus' life, you read through the Gospel of Luke, let's say, Jesus is praying all of the time. And he's praying in the most desperate, hardest moments of his life, in the most critical moments. 
one that really sticks out to me when Jesus is totally worn out from preaching and teaching and healing. When I'm worn out from ministry, I like to go put on a show on Netflix and check out. Jesus, it's like I'm so tired. All right, I'm going to go away for eight hours by myself to pray. When he's in absolute anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, his hardest night of his life, I got to pray all night. That's all I can do. And so there, there is some disconnect between how Jesus understood prayer and, and the life that he drew from prayer and our experience of prayer, which is often, you know, anxiety-inducing. And he knew something we don't know. He had some secret in there, he, insight that, that we lack. And one of the comforting, as I've been wrestling through that, one of the most comforting passages is in Luke 11.1, 1, where Luke tells us that one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. I find that very, very encouraging, because here are these disciples. They spent every waking moment with Jesus. I mean, they spent every moment with Jesus. They prayed with him. They watched him pray. But there was something about Jesus' approach to prayer and their approach that are like, we might have prayed with you, but we don't know how to pray. You can imagine them sitting around as Jesus is like, I'm going to go pray. They're thinking, all right, he'll be back in 10 minutes. Seven hours later, he's still on the mountain. And eventually, there had to be some kind of conversation between them. Like, what, does he, what is he saying? When he prays, what does he actually do? How does he do this for, for seven hours, eight hours, all night long? And so one disciple, we'll never know which one, at least the side of eternity, one of them finally had the boldness to say, Lord, we don't know how to pray. Can you teach us? Because prayer is hard. And in response to their request, Jesus doesn't give them strategies or techniques. He gives them a prayer. He's like, all right, I'll teach you how to pray. And that's the prayer that we've come to call the Lord's Prayer. And I've spent the last couple months of my life immersing myself in this prayer, and I, I never say this lightly, but it has changed my life. The Lord's Prayer is absolutely and utterly amazing, and it has the power to change your life. I've actually come to believe that most of our problems with prayer come because we haven't actually sat under and absorbed Jesus' teaching on prayer. Like Jesus has taught us some very critical things about prayer, but we haven't actually listened and obeyed, and that's why we struggle so much to pray. Well, here in Matthew 6, we're at the very heart, the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew gives us Jesus' definitive teaching on prayer. And Jesus, he tells us two ways that we're not to pray. He says, one, don't turn your prayers into a show for others. And we talked about this last week. Don't be anxious about what other people are going to think of you. And don't pray in such a way to be seen. That's number one. And then the second warning is he says, don't turn your prayers into a show for God. He talks about the pagans who go on babbling incessantly and endlessly, thinking that God is going to hear them because of their many words. And Jesus says, I love it. He says, don't be like them. Don't do that. And then Jesus actually says something that's really interesting and curious. In verse 8, Jesus says, you don't need to babble on and on. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, just think about that. God already knows, the Father already knows what you need before, before you ask him. So that means that prayer 
is not a means by which we bring information to God that God does not currently have. In prayer, we are not opening God's eyes to things that he might have missed. We're not making him aware of needs in our life that he didn't know. Like, oh my gosh, I've just, I've been so busy ruling the universe, I totally missed this. It's not what's happening in prayer. Jesus actually says he knows what you need, and he, he knows our needs better than we know our needs. Like, we think we know our needs, we don't really know our needs. I came across this quote this week uh, from a theologian who said this, so often we pray, but we pray for foolish things when what we need is something totally different. We are naked. Instead of praying for clothing, we pray for bonbons. We are imprisoned by certain passions or sins or negative emotions. And instead of praying for freedom, we pray for a Persian rug for our cell. So often we pray for senseless things that have no relation to our needs. And the reason is that we do not know the deepest wants and necessities of our life at all. And I read that, and that was piercing. A lot of times we're praying for things that we don't actually need. But the real encouragement, Jesus tells us, is, but your Father knows. He knows what you need. Not only does he know what you need, so you don't need to inform him, prayer is also not a way to convince God to do what's right. God is perfect and holy and just and good. He doesn't need you or me to tell him how to, to be good or to do justice. Prayer is not us manipulating or cajoling God. And so then the question, because we're Americans, you know, and we're very important in our own minds, we're like, well, then why should I pray? Why should I bother doing that? And the answer is because he told us to. And because Jesus prayed. And because prayer, while it never changes God, it can absolutely change things. There's a mystery there. But one of the biggest things prayer changes is us when we pray. Prayer is the means by which we communicate with God, we connect with God, we commune with God. We, we talk with him as in a relationship. And what's so amazing about this prayer is Jesus, who is God, He's teaching us how to talk to God. Like a parent teaches a child, here's how you talk. Here's things, don't, you don't want to say these kinds of, this is what you want to say, because you're trying to train them and form them. In this prayer, Jesus, who's God, is saying, here's how you talk to God. That's amazing. It's a gift. This prayer is a huge gift. When we say we don't know how to pray, Jesus is like, well, I'm telling you, this is how you should do it. And what he's doing here is he's teaching us in particular how we might develop what I would call a proactive prayer life. So often our prayers are reactive. And I, I want to be clear, even bad praying is better than not praying. It's like exercise. Whatever you're doing, it's better than not doing it. But so often our prayers are very reactive. If any of you have ever read Anne Lamott, she talks about she basically has three prayers that she says over and over and over again, like... Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's one. Help me, help me, help me. That's two. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, that's my prayer life. And that's not bad. But it's not enough. And Jesus says, I want you to, to grow into being proactive. I want you 
I want you to cultivate your hearts as you talk with God, that your hearts might more fully align with him. Because prayer, it's not, in prayer, we're not trying to get the almighty God who rules over everything to bend his will to our will. That would be horrible. Because I know myself and I know you. In prayer, what we're trying to do is we're trying to bend our hearts and our wills to his. And Jesus is saying, and here's how you do it. And so what I want to do before we walk through it is I just want to read it together. Can we do that? You guys up for that? All right. It should be up on the screen. Let's go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's it. How do we pray? He gives us this prayer. This prayer is amazing. It's amazing for a number of reasons. One, it's really short. It took us 22 to 24 seconds to say that. That's encouraging. Two, it's sweeping. And what I mean by this is it covers kind of everything. Like every dimension of our lives fits in here. And then three, it's structured. There's an actual structure to the prayer. And I tried to show that with the formatting up there, that there is literary artistic structure. Jesus put it together in such a way that it's like a poem. There's an introductory line. And then there's three requests we make of God concerning God. Those are what we could call the your requests. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then there are three requests we make for ourselves. The us requests. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And then lead us not into temptation. And Jesus put this structure in place because I think Jesus intended, fully intended for his followers to memorize this prayer. So he made it short and he made it very easy to memorize so that this prayer might be the anchor for their movement. And I think he gave us this prayer and wanted us to memorize this prayer because I think Jesus wanted us to actually pray this prayer. When Jesus said pray like this, I think he meant you should pray like this. And so I think this is prayer, the Lord's Prayer, it's something that we should pray every day. We should pray maybe multiple times a day. I also think it's a pattern for all of our prayers. So I don't think we should only pray this, but I do think we should pray it regularly. And knowing that that was Jesus's heart, that means that every, everything in here, every line is, is teaching us something that Jesus thinks we need to hear constantly. We need their truths that we need to keep before us and we need to hold before God every single day. The real challenge for us is it's so familiar that we can say this prayer without even thinking about it. Just like driving here this morning, so many of you, you don't even remember driving here because it's just in your head, you're like, church, and then you just kind of end up here and you didn't even think about it. We can do that with the prayer. Lord's Prayer, and then we just kind of check out. And what, what we do is we actually start babbling like Jesus tells us not to do because we're just making noises, but we're not actually thinking about what we're saying. And so that's a, a big setup to say, what I want to do today is I just want to walk through the prayer. 56 words. I want to walk through it. I want to help you 
discover, maybe rediscover how amazing this prayer is because I'm convinced if we as a people memorize this prayer, live this prayer, transform our church, it transform our city. Sound good? All right, so the introduction, our Father in heaven. Jesus, how should we pray? Well, you need to begin, our Father in heaven. In this first line, Jesus somehow knows that in the busyness of life and in everything else, it'll be very easy for us to lose our bearings and to forget who this God is that we are praying to and what our relationship is to him. And so he wants to remind us, and so he builds it into the prayer, who are you praying to? He's your father, but he's not just your father. He's our father. And when Jesus taught this, this was a pretty revolutionary thing. People didn't go around talking about God as their father. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God is likened to, an old, to a father. But Jesus says, when you pray, you get to go to him and say, our father, dad. This is profound, and we could spend weeks just talking about this one truth. But Jesus, he's passing on something of his special relationship with God to us. And he says, when you go to God, you get to call him father. But he includes the hour there because he's not just your father, he's our father. And Jesus, he never wants us to forget, and this is such an important word for us in our day, where we're all, you know, our own people and we're individuals and he never wants us to forget that we actually belong to a people and our lives are deeply interconnected with God and with one another and there is no isolated person. So it's our. By putting our at the beginning of the prayer, Jesus turns every individual prayer into a corporate prayer. Our Father. Well, what does it mean that God is our Father? I'll give you three, four, four attributes I want to go through them quickly, although I, I would love to spend weeks on this. First implication that God is our father, father means affection. In any healthy relationship between a father and a child, there's warmth and love and affection. So Jesus teaches, when you're coming to God in prayer, remember that he loves you, cares for you, he has affection for you. Number two, father, advocacy. It means advocacy. And what I mean by that is dads always want the best for their kids, good dads. Good dads always want the best for them. Jesus will teach in chapter 7 of Matthew that you guys are evil, he says. But even you, if your son asked for a fish, you wouldn't give him a snake. And if you who are evil know how to give, give, give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts? So it's affection, it's advocacy, and then it's access. Like one of the real privileges of being a kid is that you get access to your parents like no one else gets access. You can be the child of the President of the United States when no one else can meet with the President, and you get to see him all the time. Affection, advocacy, access. But then there's a fourth one, and the fourth one is authority. Jesus doesn't teach us to pray our friend or our brother or our buddy. He teaches us to pray our Father. And in a healthy relationship between a father and child, they are not peers. There is authority and submission, along with all those other things. And that's what makes a great, healthy relationship between father and child such a beautiful thing. And Jesus, he highlights this authority in the next two words when he says, Our Father in heaven. 
Now, heaven, there's a lot of ways we, you could define that, but one of the ways is when you read the words in heaven, think on the throne. The God who is ruling and reigning the cosmos. And so he's holding these two things, our Father in heaven. He's our dad, but he's also the king overall. And one of the keys to prayer is actually holding both of those things together. You got to have them both. Father, knowing that he's our father, means that we can come to him in, with boldness. Now, maybe you couldn't go to your dad with boldness. We can go to him with boldness. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can just barge right in like a child. Dad, he might be in the middle of a conversation with someone else. He'll still hear you. But then in heaven means we can ask big things of him because he's ruling and reigning over all. If he's just our father, but he's not in heaven, we can go talk to him like a therapist, and it wouldn't be all bad, but we can't go ask big things of him. But he's in heaven. He's on the throne. And so we can ask big things. God, mend this marriage. God, heal these relationships. God, heal our city. Or even bigger things, like God, hallow your name. Make your kingdom come. But your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, which is what Jesus will teach us to pray. And the secret to prayer is you got to hold both of those together. And Jesus is saying, every time you pray, you've got to remind yourself, that's who your God is. He's your father on the throne. And then he gives us these three, what I call the your requests. Three petitions we make of God in regards to God. One regarding his name, one regarding his kingdom, and one regarding his will. And each of these requests, they're tied together with one another, and they're all tied to the phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. So each one of these requests you could put, on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Each one. So what do these mean? Like we've said these hundreds, if not thousands of times in our life. What, is, what does hallowed be your name mean? Anyone use the word hallowed this week? It's not a word we use except for uh, near the end of October with Halloween, right? They're connected. But hallow, it's an important word. It's connected to another word that we, we don't use a lot, but we use more. And we don't understand completely, but we understand more than hallow. It's connected to the word holy, which means unique, set apart, glorious, beautiful, wondrous. And to hallow something literally means to holify it. I just made that up. Sanctify it. Holify it. Treat it as it deserves to be treated. So that helps a little bit, but then we got to ask, why is Jesus teaching us to pray, God, hallow your name? Like, isn't God's name already holy? Am I the one who's going to make it holy? What, what's this about? Well, we know just in our day, in our day, just like in that day, name can mean more than just sounds. It's, name often means reputation. And Jesus, in teaching us to pray, our first request, hallowed be your name, Jesus is drawing our attention to the tragic reality that on this earth, God is not honored or seen for who he truly is. And that makes us unhappy. On this earth, people do not see God as gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness, slow to anger, but also just. Instead, in our world, people, you know, they, 
when they think of God, they think of caricatures of him. So maybe he's an absentee landlord who just doesn't care about all the stuff that's happening and all the darkness. Or maybe he's a volatile, vengeful tyrant. And we, as disciples of Jesus, we actually know who God is, and we recognize the world doesn't, and we know that God's name is dishonored, and so we're pleading, God, hallow your name. I mean, what we're asking for there is, God, fill the earth with knowledge of who you really are. Restore your reputation. And so how's God going to do that? How will God restore his reputation on this earth? Well, it'll happen by his kingdom coming and his will being done. Where? On earth, here, as it is in heaven. See, they're connected. The way God will hallow his name is by fully bringing his kingdom and his will. But it's really important, you see, here on earth, as it already is in heaven. In heaven, God's name is already hallowed. His kingdom's there. His will's being done. The prayer we're taught to pray is, what you're doing there, do here. And we've talked about this a number of times over the last few weeks, but I'm going to talk about it again because we've all been fed this half-truth, if not a complete untruth, about what Christians have traditionally referred to as the end times. I don't, know, I don't know exactly when this arose, but most of us were taught, and we've been taught since we were little, that what Christianity teaches is that the end times, Jesus is going to snatch us up from this hellhole of an earth. He's going to take us to heaven, and we're going to live there, you know, with our family disembodied, and then he's going to torch this place. And just burn it to the ground. What the Bible actually teaches is that at the end of the ages, heaven's going to come to earth. The new Jerusalem is going to descend. God's going to take this world and he's going to heal it. He's going to fix it. We broke it and he's going to fix it. When that happens, that means his kingdom has come in fullness. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're saying, God, come through on that promise. Like, fix this place. Fix us. Fix our relationship with you. You've promised to do it. Do it, because you're already doing it there, and we want you to do it here. We want your kingdom to come here. And your will to be done here. If you're tracking with me, then you'll see that in these first three petitions, Jesus, he's not giving us veiled commands as is often taught. These first three, he doesn't say, you know, our Father in heaven, may I hallow your name, may I bring your kingdom, may I do your will. I think there's some implications that come with praying this, but in those first three petitions, we're actually just asking God to do stuff that only he can do. We can draw applications from it, but we're saying, God, come through on your promises. And as we do that, it's going to change us. It's going to change our behaviors, absolutely. But more than that, it's going to change our hopes, our longings, and our desires. And our desires are what actually shape our lives. 
And so Jesus here is saying, I want to form your desires. I don't know what you desire. Maybe you desire a bigger house. I really desire nice landscaping in my house right now. It's like, I'd really like to make my house look better. Maybe you desire a car or a better job or a person. I don't know what your desires are. Jesus is saying they're all so small and puny compared to the desires I want you to have, which is God healing the world and our relationship with him. He's saying, I want to form you. I want to form your longings because your longings drive everything else. And so the first half of the prayer, Jesus is teaching us how to think about the world and he's training our desires. God, make me long for the things that you long for. And then in the second half of the prayer, Jesus gives us some very, very basic things to pray for as we wait for the day when he makes all things new. He gives us some very basic things. And really, it's, it's so interesting. The first half, it's like, hallowed be your name because you are in heaven and your kingdom's coming and it's going to be amazing. That's what we're asking of God. And then we come to ourselves and what do we pray for? Bread, forgiveness, and protection. Three really, really simple things. Bread, forgiveness, protection. Give us this day our daily bread. Can anyone think of a story in the Bible where people had to collect bread every day to survive? Anyone? Yeah, right? The Exodus. So when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, he's actually very intentionally, he's speaking to a Jewish audience who the Exodus is the biggest story of the Old Testament. When he says, give us our, this day our daily bread, all of them are like, oh, I know that story. If you don't know the story, God's people lived in slavery in Egypt under a, a brutal dictator, and they suffered, and God set them free. He delivered them from their slavery, and he brought them on this journey so they were no longer slaves, and he was leading them to this land filled with all of these wonderful promises. It's a land going to be flowing with milk and honey. It was a place that was going to be a blessing for the whole world, and so it was this Every one of them, they just couldn't wait to get to that land. But they were, for a while, they lived in this in-between space between being delivered and living fully in the promises of God. And that in-between space was called the wilderness. And when they were in the wilderness, they would struggle to find food and water. And so what God did is he gave them this stuff called manna. Manna was this strange, mysterious bread crystals that would form like dew on the grass. The name manna, does anyone know what it means? means what? Because <laughs> they would go out and look, what? What is this strange stuff on the grass? It tastes good, like honey and wafers. I like this. Now, the thing about manna was you could only collect it for a day. It had a very short shelf life. If you tried to store it up, it would go rotten and be filled with maggots. And so you could only collect it every day. Now, why is God doing this? Well, he wants to provide, absolutely. But if he wanted to provide, there's a lot of ways, and he could have made it so it didn't have such a short shelf life. Well, the reason God taught them, gave them this, is he wanted to teach them to trust in him as their provider. He didn't want them to forget who they were, the story they were a part of, or who he was as their provi provider, their redeemer, and their sustainer. Well, if we've prayed the first half of the Lord's Prayer, 
we recognize that we too, we were once living in slavery. Our slavery was to sin. We too have been set free from that slavery. And we're longing for the day when God comes through on his promises, makes all things new. We're never going to have any wants or needs on that day. But right now, we too are living in this in-between space, this wilderness. And just like the Israelites, in this in-between space, it's very, very easy for us to forget who we are, who God is, or what story we're a part of. And so in teaching us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're saying, God, I need to be reminded because there's all of these other narratives and stories out there. There's a lot of people out there that say, I'm my own person. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And sometimes I'm tempted to believe them. There's other narratives out there that say, I can do anything I put my mind to. I can achieve all of my dreams. I need to be reminded, though, of the story that I can't, that I'm totally and utterly dependent upon you. There's a big story that we've all been taught to believe since we were little, that if you work hard, you'll be really successful, and all of your success comes from your hard work. Give us this day our daily bread teaches us that while I am not diminishing hard work, but it teaches us that all things come from God. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our, our daily bread, even when we utter those words, we're being reminded that we're creatures and we're not the creator. You know, we, we live in a land of abundance, flourishing like our world's never seen. We have a Kroger every two miles. You know, if you have any friends, though, that are preppers, you know what I mean? Like the, their basement's been turned into a bunker. When you talk to them, it's, it's always fast. But what they say is like, well, what happens if Kroger shuts down, you know, or loses power, or food doesn't get delivered? We'd actually all be in a lot of trouble, except if you've got some friends who are preppers, you know? You can go hang out with them. Why? Because we're creatures, and we have needs. We need bread. We can't survive long without food. We need water. We can't survive a day without it. We need oxygen. We can't survive more than a minute or two without it. Give us this day. Our daily bread reminds us that we are creatures who are utterly dependent upon God to sustain us. Now, the world rages against that truth. The world, no, we're autonomous. Look at what we can do. We don't rage. We actually celebrate it. Why? Because God's our Father, and he delights in taking care of us. He delights in providing for us. We don't have to be anxious because our Father always provides the bread. Always. Give us this day our daily bread. It teaches us to deepen our dependence on God, grow our gratitude, and I would say it will grow our generosity. If you're out collecting manna, knowing that, you know, and seemingly in an instant it's all going to go bad, and you saw someone who didn't have it, and you had all this stuff that you knew was going to rot or spoil or fade or be eaten, but you'd be like, oh, you need help? Sure, because this stuff's all fading. But it can benefit you now, so sure, I'll help you. There's some real social implications of this, but we've got to move on. Give us the day our daily bread. And then the next one, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
Jesus is not talking about our finances here. Debts was a way of talking about wrongdoing or sin. And if the first us request reminds us that we're creatures, the second reminds us that we're sinners. And I actually find this petition, the first half at least, incredibly encouraging. Jesus is saying, here's your prayer. I want you to pray this all the time. What do they need to be reminded of? Well, they're going to sin all the time on this journey in the in-between space in the wilderness. And so they need to be reminded all the time that there's forgiveness for sins. And so he taught us to pray, Lord, forgive. Forgive us our debts because we're going to sin. Jesus, this is a real word for some of you. Jesus didn't want us to live our lives weighed down by guilt, fear, or shame. None of those are fruit of the Spirit. Jesus didn't want us to walk on this earth with what I call the miserable sinner theology. I'm a worm. I'm less than a worm. I'm nothing but sin. I'm just horrible all the time, and I should feel horrible, and I'm going to make everyone else in my life feel horrible too. But you should, you should taste and see that the Lord is good and the joy that comes with Jesus. It's like, what? Jesus is saying, no, don't, don't live like that. Remember, there's forgiveness. And so every day, multiple times a day, because you're going to sin multiple times a day, pray, forgive us, and be reminded, God forgives. Where this one gets hard is Jesus attaches this rider to it. Like, hey, pray for forgiveness. God's eager to forgive. But we also are going to forgive, and you also are going to forgive. Right after giving us this prayer, Jesus wants to be really clear He's like, I don't want to build this into the thing you memorize, but you really need to hear me here. You have to forgive. Forgiveness is a black and white issue for me. Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that's intense. Why is Jesus so intense about this? Well, we just talked about how his disciples, as his disciples, we're going to sin. Sin always affects other people, almost always. And so, and we're all on this journey together. And so we're going to be sinning and hurting each other. And if there's not a willingness or an eagerness to forgive, then Jesus's mission and his movement will cannibalize itself, will eat each other alive, and the message will be lost. And Jesus is saying, I've come to bring a new era and a new way of relating. The old way is someone wrongs you and you wrong them back and things escalate and then you build factions and you, you gossip and you slander and everyone wants strict justice and I, they want their pound of flesh and you, you bite and devour and consume one another. And Jesus is saying, not with my people because at the heart of my message is forgiveness. And if you guys can't live forgiveness, that means you don't understand the forgiveness I've offered. The message will become completely lost. And he right put it like this. He said, failure to forgive one another is not a, isn't a matter of failing to live up to a new bit of moral teaching. It's cutting off the branch you're sitting on. The only reason for being kingdom people, for being Jesus' people, is that the forgiveness of sins is happening. So if you don't live forgiveness, you are denying the very basis of your own new existence. Now, forgiveness is a big topic. 
but it's non-negotiable. I want to be clear. Jesus doesn't say if you struggle to forgive, your father won't forgive you. He says if you don't. He doesn't say if it takes some time. And Jesus also doesn't say unless you're fully reconciled. No. Forgiveness requires one person, you, to forgive. Forgiveness is different than reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two people. You can forgive people, absorb the debt of their sin, how it's hurt you, and not hold ill will towards them, and yet still never be in the same room with them alone ever again. Jesus actually advises that in Matthew 18. If they don't listen, if they're a toxic person, if they're a destructive person, you don't have to just submit and lie, I got to forgive them for their narcissistic behavior and how they berate and belittle all the... No, no, no. You just can't harbor bitterness. Forgive. And this is so important. I've been pastoring for 12 years and every week this issue, this inability to forgive, I watch it sap the church of its power and its strength. Someone wrong, someone... And all of a sudden, the theoretical, we're all sinners in need of a savior, becomes actual. And then people just lose their minds. I'm leaving the church. I can't believe I'm going <laughs> to write a blog post about what this person did to me. Really? Like, where did Jesus teach that? Where did Jesus teach us when someone wrongs you, burn them to the ground? No. Oh. But that's what we want. When someone wrongs us, we don't even just want them to pay. Like we want, we want the finality that comes with killing them in our minds and in other people's minds. We want to destroy them. And Jesus is saying, not my people. And so you're going to have to pray this like all the time to train yourself to think this way. And so as we seek to honor God's name and pray that his name would be honored and long for his kingdom, and as we, we re- reject the consumerism of our age and live with the humility and graciousness and show forgiveness, Jesus says it's going to be really, really hard if you do these things. If you're my disciples, it's going to be really difficult. You're going to get persecuted. People are going to oppose you. They're not going to understand you. And so he gives us the final request. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a request for protection. And on first reading, this is challenging. God, don't lead me into temptation. Is that God in the business? Is our Father in the business of, hey, let's see if we can trip them up? Of course not. If you were here when we taught a month ago, a month and a half ago, about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, we know that that word temptation could also be translated the word test. God never tempts. God's goal is never to get you to indulge in sin, but God will put you through a fire to refine you. And what Jesus is teaching us here in this prayer is it's okay to say to God, I know that you do that, but I would prefer you didn't. (laughs) That's awesome, isn't it? God, you test us, but I'm very weak and frail. I'd rather not be tested. I love it. Jesus doesn't just give us permission. He actually models this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's looking at the cross and he's saying, I don't want to do that. It looks horrible. Lead me not into the testing. But then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. And that's where the second part, but if you, 
if you do, if you still want to put me through the test, even though I don't want to go through the test, don't let that test become a real temptation. Don't let that test lead me away from you. Don't let Satan get a foothold there. When you're testing me, maybe you don't have a job right now and you're wondering, is God going to provide? And Satan's whispering in your ear, God's testing you. Will you trust me to provide your daily bread? Satan's whispering in your ear, he doesn't care about you. He's not going to provide. You can't trust him. And when we pray, deliver us from evil, we're saying, keep those lies from me and help me to trust you even in the midst of it. Protect me. This prayer reminds us that we're embattled, that there are spiritual forces at work in our world and in our lives. And if we're going to persevere as Jesus' disciples in this world, it's, it's really hard to do that. We need his protection. And God promises to give it. He who began a good work in you, Paul says, will carry it on to completion. And so Jesus teaches us to pray this, to remind ourselves, oh yeah, and God protects me. And that's the Lord's Prayer. That's how it ends. And it's amazing. And it speaks to everything. Everything in life. It has the power to change your life because it gives you an expansive view of God, of this world, of what he's doing, and even of what our lives can be. But it challenges. It challenges how we often pray. So often, you know, we pray the very opposite of this prayer. We pray what I call the anti-Lord's prayer. Right? How do our prayers begin? Me, Kevin, on this earth, hallowed be my name. Could you make me awesome and help people think that I'm awesome? May my kingdom come. May you bless all of my plans fulfill all of my desires and come through on all of my dreams here on earth and in heaven. Give me today more than I will ever need so that I will never have to trust you and I can feel superior to other people's by what I wear or what I drive or where I live. Forgive me my sins because nobody's perfect and we all make mistakes, but curse those people who've wronged me. Burn them to the ground. Or just keep me away from having to deal with conflict whatsoever because I hate conflict. <laughs> and in the end, please give me an easy life. Amen. Can anyone relate to that? Like there's this thing about sin. It pulls us in on ourselves. And then we pray like that and we're, we're looking and it leads to this very diminished life and a very diminished vision for life. And we're focusing on ourselves, and no offense, but none of us are all that great, not compared to this. And Jesus is saying, lift up your head and expand your vision. Like, I don't know what your vision is, but it's not as great as this vision. I don't know what you're praying for, but it's peanuts compared to this. And so if we actually put ourselves under this teaching, and maybe that's the application for some of you, if you've never memorized this, memorize it. For some of you who haven't memorized, maybe rewrite it. Just change up the language a little to make it a little less familiar. And then pray it every day. 
pray it multiple times a day. You get up in the morning, these days before I roll out of bed, it takes 25 seconds. I pray the prayer. Sometimes it takes me five minutes to get through it. If I'm in bed at night and I'm struggling to sleep, I pray the prayer. Let's be a people who pray this prayer and then see what God might do through us. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the goodness of God, that he provides our daily bread, but he also provided for us the bread of life. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you, for you. And he took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood that's poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that God provides and meets every one of our needs. And that apart from Christ, we are hopeless and helpless. But in Christ, we are sons and daughters and we are loved. And so we feast at this meal. We confess our sins, but we also rejoice in how God's cared for us. So if you're here and you're a believer, I encourage you to come forward and to feast at the table of your father. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can't pray the Lord's Prayer yet. I mean, you can say the words, but they can't be real to you. Jesus wants you to be able to pray this prayer. He wants these truths to be true for you. And so I'd encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to put your faith in him. He's given himself for you. He's making all things new, and he's inviting you now into life with him. Let me pray.